Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. We're here today with Louis, John, and Trent. Uh, today's topic is the rule of three. And I think before we really get into what the rule of three is, um, Lou, can we, can we start with you and um, just explain how you got into becoming who you are in powerlifting and just growing up as um, a kid and why you chose the sport you did and the path you took to become where you're at now? Sure, Tom. You know, actually, in the Soviet Union, that's where the term came from, the rule of three. They changed children from seven to ten. and uh, But sometimes ice skaters and dentists, they'd actually start at four years old. And they were evaluated at that point um, up to at ten years old. And, from, and then after they graduated from ten years old, they went from ten to thirteen, uh, thirteen to fifteen, fifteen to seventeen. Just like in junior high and high school. And, you know, you make an, can you make the team then from seventeen to nineteen? And in 19 to 21, you were polished or you were gone. Uh, I bring up the fact that I watched the Chinese divers, females at the last Olympics, and they had two Chinese divers. And there's also a Chinese diver that was uh, uh, from Australia. And that diver was one that didn't make the polished event. You know, she wasn't good enough. They cut her. She went to Australia to get in the Olympics on a lesser team. Um, but basically, it's a selection of, extra, uh, you know, athletes. They select an athlete so you have a better chance of succeeding. Me, personally, you know, there was no such thing. I started out, I was a, a block mason tender. I, I, I was a laborer at 12 years old. I had no money. That's how I made my money. And so it made me very strong. And um, I started lifting it. I, I made my first money, and at 12 years old, when I started, I cleaned, I got 110-pound weights, and I cleaned jerk to 110. At 14, I did 260 at 100, about 150 pounds in a contest. So I was really strong. And I also played baseball. And I never played baseball, though, until 12 years old. When uh, some city kids moved out in the country where I was, and I'd never played ball at all, and they got me to play baseball, I, I just seemed to be a natural at baseball. I was real quick and, and you know stronger than all the other kids by a mile, and so I led Columbus in home runs as as my first year. I had 17 home runs, and basically, uh, you know, I tell a story right down the street. It's it's really strange. Right down here, we're in Valley View, um, oh, you know, Columbus, and right down the street, a half a mile from this gym, there was a. Um, uh, a home run fence because I'd never played where's home run fence. I'd hit a home run, had to run around the bases and run my ass off. Down there, I hit a ball to fence, and so I got to try around the base. I heard everybody cheering for me, and I thought, well, hell, I could be something. I'm something. I'm different than them because they're cheering for me, you know. And because uh, I hit a lot of home runs, this made me that that trotting around the bases changed my life. And so I proceeded to play baseball and. Um, I always lifted weights. I loved to lift weights. I wanted to be a strong man when I was little. That's all I wanted to be. So from that time on, at 15 years old, I had real bad grades in school and couldn't get on, couldn't stay on the team because I had no grades. And But um, my Pony League coach uh, got me on his farm club for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And uh, you had to be out of school 17 or older to play. Well, I started 15, and I batted third, played right field. I was a real good baseball player, just just natural. But then uh, in 1966, when I graduated from high school, I was being drafted into the Army. And uh, so I went to my first power meet. And after that, and I got in the Army, uh, but I changed my life from Olympic weightlifting to powerlifting. But when I, I got to thinking that I'm, I'm not, you know, then I was a little over five foot six. And I thought, what is the odds of me being a professional baseball player competing against guys at, you know, six two, six three back then? So I decided to lift weights. And, and th that turn of events, uh, you know, got me where I am today. You know, I mean, I had a pretty illustrious career and I've done a lot of things I never dreamed of. So basically, I formulated my own rule of 10. 
I, I, you know, rule of three, I decided that my best possible chance for success was to be a weightlifter because I was small and, you know, in stature. So that's how I started. And, I, and you know, um, uh, Trent, I'd like for you to introduce yourself and, and kind of tell the story how you got where you are because, you know, you're a high status right now. Yeah, I'm Trent Murphy with the Washington Redskins here, outside linebacker. Just finished my fourth season with them, going into my fifth year, entering free agency here. So it should be a interesting March and April to see if the Redskins resign me or if I'm uh, taking my talents elsewhere. But I kind of stumbled into football, to be honest. I, I was late to tackle football. A lot of people start earlier. They do, you know, Pop Warner or, or whatever you guys call it, back east. Um and I, I didn't start till I was 15, a freshman in high school. I was going to try all three sports. I wanted to try football, basketball, baseball, and there was kind of an overlap. Football fell first, got into it, uh, ended up having some natural talent. Started to look at the bigger picture and realized that at 6'6", a guy that can bend and move well in football is a, is a special thing. You're part of an elite group, especially at pass rusher. You're long. You get a lot of leverage on guys. But a 6'6", guy in basketball is not very special and you have to be in a very elite caliber not to say that that's not possible you're more incapable of it but you're more rare commodity in football and so i kind of looked at that picture um and i and i also love the team aspect we had of football we won the first state championship in the school history my freshman year in high school and i just i fell in love with it and kind of ran with it from there um and, and then kind of was just obsessed over it really and my dad, he, it was something he always preached. He said he doesn't care what sport you pick, what, I mean, you can play the piano, you can do anything you want. But he just harped on that. If you're going to do it, you're going to try to be the best at it, and you're going to spend more time at it than any other kid is spending time at it. You have to outwork those kids, outthink those kids, outperform those kids, and that takes time, that takes effort, and that takes energy. And so I kind of honed in on one sport right away when I picked it, and ran with it, ran with it from there, and kind of the rest is history. So basically, you self-evaluated yourself to become a football player. Yeah, you can uh, say that. And you had good coaching on the way, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, without good coaching, you'll go nowhere. No, I would have just been running my head into a wall repeatedly. So, uh, and I did that a few times, and kind of <clears> got <throat> burnt out, and then realized that you reevaluated. You weren't recovering. You weren't doing this, and and took a look at, at some bigger picture things. So. Every year, I think I know something, and then the next year, I find out I didn't know anything last year, and and keep moving forward. So that's good, constant learner. Uh, about your parents, what type of parents do you have? Are your parents large? And, uh, you have good genetics for football. Yeah, I have pretty pretty ideal genetics for football. Really, my dad, he's six seven, uh, probably three hundred fifteen pounds. He's definitely passes the eye test, and I couldn't beat him in a foot re foot race until I was twenty one. Uh, and so he, he definitely could have played if, if he had ever made that decision. Uh, and then my mom, she's like 5'8", five, 5'8 eight, five, eight and a half, just above average, and, and was pretty athletic. And she didn't really play sports, but she could always do kind of front handsprings off a diving board into the pool and different things that showed athleticism. So uh, definitely blessed from that standpoint. Um, and then just instilled hard, hard work ethic. So mm -hmm. between the athleticism and the work, I think combine those two things that I got – solely from them made a recipe for success God, and i have a book coming out to rule three and i talk about genetics and i talk about good coaching and i talk about good parents and now everybody has to be on the same page and it sounds like you know you you were lucky enough to come through with those three qualities 
coaching parents and your, your physical ability. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, consistent work, I mean, it's kind of, for me at least, was a, a big factor. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talent in the NFL, but those those the average careers like two and a half years and those guys are in out of the league like that and if they don't continue mm -hmm. to stay on that grind and stay focused mm -hmm. ignore all the outside noise i mean you can take all the success and all the talent in the world and they're 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 out of the league i mean some of the most athletic athletically gifted guys i've ever seen in my life and they're they they didn't even play in the nfl yeah, i've seen it that's, that's why they call it not for long yeah exactly well john what about you? And I know you bodybuild, so how did you come to the conclusion to be a bodybuilder and maybe not pick another sport? Yeah, um, I mean, I grew up uh, wrestling and playing football. And, uh, I mean, obviously weightlifting, I was kind of like you where I guess I was undersized, so I needed to, you know, basically uh, work on increasing my strength as much as I could. And then I also, my parents uh, entered me in school, so I was always younger than everyone else because I had like a late September birthday. So it's like even when I went to play football in college, I was 17. I couldn't even sign myself off. My parents had to come because I wasn't 18 yet. So, I mean, I really, you know, my dad basically instilled the same thing he, you know, that Trent's dad did where it's like, hey, man, you're going to have to work, you know. And so I basically reached the point when I was in college where I liked, you know, working out more than I liked playing football. And then basically uh, at the time I was fortunate enough that there was a, a bodybuilder at the gym uh, that uh, I started training with in the off season, and he was the one that convinced me. He's like, "Hey, man, you could be really good at bodybuilding." And at that point, that's when I shifted from you know playing football to bodybuilding. So by building up your body like that, is that how you also got interested in what you do now, ART? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so basically, like Trent and I were talking about it uh, prior to this. So then uh, when I started, you know, when I stopped doing, I guess, athletics and started to train specifically for bodybuilding, you know, I started having back pain and and then basically uh, no one could really help me. And I knew that I wouldn't have a long career from like 20 years old and already have back pain. So that's when I started to transition and I basically found someone who's a neuromuscular therapist. And then, and then from there I learned ART. And then from there I do, you know, functional range release, uh, functional range conditioning, all that other stuff. So, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like what you guys were, you know, you're just always learning, nonstop learning, learn something from here. It builds off this and you're just constantly back and forth. Solve one problem, it opens another problem. You exactly. Solve problem, pretty soon you got a big toolbox. Exactly. You always need a bigger toolbox. Exactly. Yeah. Tom, what about you? Hear a little bit of how you got where you are today. Me? Jeez. <laughs> I ask myself that every day. I'm so blessed here to be working for Louis Simmons. <laughs> um, Besides no, your part-time job as being an expert on... You know, Irish folklore. Uh, you know, <laughs> anyone, anyone wants to know anything about Ireland, just, just email Tom Barry. Don't, don't. We, we've been through this, Lou. Uh, I, I've gotten mail for about a year because he told me, yeah, anyway. Um, when I grew up, we, we got national sports that are different to here, but I always wanted a box. And um, eventually, I, I really I started boxing real late. I started when I was like 15, which is way too late. But always wanted to do it, and um, you don't appreciate footwork in boxing until you're actually in a boxing ring. So I uh, remember, or or how how well conditioned they are. I remember first day going in, and uh, you have to run five miles. I'm like, there's no way. And he goes, yeah. And so a mile and a half in, my two legs cramp up and I fall over. And the guy brings me in. And if you want to be serious about this, so I was, and I started boxing, got in the ring, 
and uh, my coordination, my foot coordination was terrible. So people would tee off on me, and I'm like, this is not good. But I tried to think, well, how can I use my feet to advantage? So I went to kickboxing and Muay Thai, and when I did that, I could use my feet to set up my hands, and that helped me out hugely. But the when I went overseas, um, that's when I learned that I'm in a sport where it's pretty average in and if you're pretty average in a fighting sport it means you're going to get your ass handed to you a lot and <laughs> I, I made a few mistakes over there where I got my ass handed to me a lot and I really like coaching and then that's where kind of I realized I'm a way better coach than I am an athlete and uh, I could be a half-ass athlete or a really good coach and that's where I made a kind of a decision to okay I'm going to stick to coaching and go back to college and but it was from <laughs> that interest that if I always want to be around a sport and if I couldn't do the sport, but I could coach it. And I think because of that, I see so many talented people. And I go, well, how did they get so talented? And it forced me to go research into how to train the body, how to train the mind, and how I could try replicate how our guys are at the top and come down. So it's kind of my inability to be a pro athlete, really at the highest level, kind of fueled me. Well, I'm not going to be good at that. I'm going to be good at something and get into coaching. So And then I sent an email over here and Seven and a half years later, uh, I, I mean, I've been kept here under un, under false labor rules. So. If immigration's even listening to this, the time buries at this address. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a lot like Freddie Roach, Tom. I used to watch Freddie Roach fight on ESPN. He was a you know decent boxer, but not great. And uh, but you know, when you make a lot of mistakes, you get beat up a lot. You learn how not to get beat up a lot, like you kept saying you did. You took. You took the path to coaching. That's what Freddie did. And he's been uh, coach of the year several times, you know, and the guy's a phenomenal coach. He sees things that people don't see. That's what a good coach is. Yeah. You know, so it, that's the thing about all you coaches out there, too, and there's a lot of you that think you're coaches, but you're not. You have to stay ahead of your athletes. If you've got a great athlete like Trent here, he had to have, the coach had to have a better mental state than he did to take him to the next level. Or he'd have never made it to the NFL. You know, how many guys you know bodybuild, and they bodybuild for 90 years, and they, you know, they can't see themselves in the mirror? Other guys, like your buddy, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Seth. Seth. I mean, then Seth gets big as a house because he's got guidance. He's got guidance from you and every, a lot of pros. And uh, just, you know, it's all about atmosphere. And like you said, I tell people, a lot of people don't like dynasties. I love dynasties because if you build a dynasty, I'm going to try to kick your dynasty's ass. If there's a dynasty, I don't have to be that good. But if you got a dynasty, you have to raise above everybody. That's why I preach here at Westside Barbell. We've held a world record from 1986 till current, way over 100 of them. You have to build a dynasty, and then you come get us. And I, we love competition because if you guys don't get better, we might not get better. So that's, that's very good, and that's about, I'm glad to hear from your, uh, your viewpoints how you got where you did. Actually, see, we all did it without the rule of three. Mm-hmm. Where the Soviets, that's why they had such great athletes. I used to lift... I started powerlifting. I've seen guys in the 70s. I've never seen people build like this in my life. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, why are the Russians so good? Uh, they can have better athletes than we do. They have better coaching than, and training methods than we do. And that's when I started in 1982 to follow what they do. After breaking my back the second time, I went to that. But we'll move on now. I want to talk about, you know, basically, um, you know, building, uh, building a, um, a GPP. You know, first you have to have a good, you've got to be in shape. You got to build all spatial strengths. Um, you have to build endurance, all types of endurance. Now, endurance just doesn't mean you can run 90 miles. It means like a fighter has to have fast hands and fast feet in the last round. And so there's all types of spatial strength you got to build. 
And uh, Trent, I want to ask you, like, how you're trained. You come up with foot drills. It's like a boxer would, I'm sure, and, and hand drills. There's always something you got to learn, right, like you're saying. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I mean, I have a huge appreciation for the martial arts world. Mm -hmm. I mean, growing up, kind of that special strength and that endurance. My dad's a construction worker and a plumber, so he'd take us to work. He'd make us put up fence for the horses. So we kind of had that hands-on strength, get the grip work. And then now that I'm kind of farther evolved, not home anymore, I mean, I try to contact – different people that are in like Wing Chun or, or Jiu-Jitsu on the ground and work different kind of hip strength on the ground and rolling and, and try to find just any way to get better. Because, I mean, that's all I'm doing is running full speed at a 340-pound offensive lineman that's bigger and stronger than me and trying to find a way to do hand-to-hand -hand combat running full speed and get around him and flip my hips. So yeah. there's kind of a lot going into that. But anything I can learn or grow from with the martial arts world is huge. So shoot, I mean, if anybody's got something out there for me, I'm more than, more than happy to, to hear you out or come learn or, or fly you out to Virginia and, and check that out. Cause hand speed, hand strength, hand placement, especially, uh, is, is huge for me. So you're always looking for an edge and that's why you come to Columbus and see John, John Clint, ART, right? Yeah, there's no question. Exactly. A lot of people come here. That's what we do. We try to look for an edge. You know, always, uh, you know, if it's not an advantage, it's a disadvantage. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. That's right. Yeah, and no one wants you to stay the same because you ain't getting paid. Dan DePasqua, the over in Australia, <laughs> that you had the same note, that right the, here. they were the first club um, ever to put on retainer a jiu-jitsu uh, coach and then wrestling. And in their off-season, they do all hand-to-hand -hand combat uh, just to get an advantage. And their injury rates are minor but they're higher in their off season and by doing that it offsets any injury in their in season so all their key players are always on the pitch yeah that's a huge so, advantage it, you know you play in the nfl and i watch the nfl and i watch how much hours at least college how many hours they practice they practice and practice and practice hours and hours and hours and i think one side of the ball in the game you probably play seven eight minutes they make a lot of teams make a lot of mistakes and as far as i'm it's too much spp they do. They repeat the thing that it's a law of accommodation. Do thing over and over and over. I mean, how do you get so many uh, blocks in the back? That just doesn't seem logical to me. I watch the game. I know nothing about the game and never played. Mm -hmm. But I'm going like some of these things. They practice and practice, and they make all these mistakes. And it just seems like maybe you know they've done it one way all forever. Correct. They need to maybe look at themselves and maybe change a few things in the structure of practice. I know. I know teams, and I'm going to mention where. But before a big game, they will run them in the ground that week, and quit. now they're playing with dead legs, and they don't understand right. what happened. You see it yourself, right? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, there's <laughs> it's something I've been talking about for for years now is that why do we use the same pop-up bags since the 1970s? <laughs> you can't say technology isn't better now today, that we could use a more specific, get better hand placement. Mm -hmm. pop-up bag looks the same from every direction, you know, kind of like you said, the block in the back point. Um, and then some of the teams that are most competitive – uh, that are going to be in the Super Bowl this year. You look at the Patriots, they do vision-specific training where they're tracking eight balls, loading a football image behind it, and have to tell you where the down safety is. So you say that you have one guy that has the ability to track eight balls, identify the numbers on the balls, and tell you where the down safety is in the image versus another guy that couldn't even track a single a single player, yet alone a ball on a, on a three-dimensional screen. So I think that they're the most competitive teams are doing things that we don't hear about behind the scenes and that's why they have a competitive advantage that's why they've built a dynasty and going to so many super bowls 
and the teams that are just doing the same thing over and over again and not getting better need to find a way to evolve and then push those guys that are at the Super Bowl every year to get even better from there. New technology. Think different. Mm -hmm. Think outside the box, as they say. Yeah, you know, I admire teams like the, I admire teams like that and I, from the top down. Uh, you know, Kraft, you, you take the owner down. It has to work from the owner down to have a great, um, you know, a team of any kind. You see this all the time. There's some teams that can't win a game, and you just wonder why. And it, because it, from the very top, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're people that select the players. They don't know what they're doing. The coaches are no good. And they select the wrong players, obviously. And it's to let coaches be a coach. Yeah. Uh, how, how many coaches do we know that are head strength coaches that can't be a strength coach? Mm. I mean, it's an epidemic. If you ask them three questions, they can't answer three questions. Well, or they become logistics managers tr trying to get people in the assembly line, in and out the door. Mm. Like, it's, it, it becomes a part of the, <clears throat> just a process. Yeah, like how many people have we heard come here and go to some university say those are not coaches, those are basically just hall monitors. Yeah. They just watch them and send them out the door. And next year you got a whole well in college you got a whole bunch more to walk in. Hope you got that star, you know. We never had that. You know, we had to do a lot of different training here, hands on. Hopefully, you know, we have our problems too. Huh? Well, it's just just with with the current way society is, yeah. things are different. But bringing up that John Danaher, mm -hmm. um, I listened to interviews with him. I mean, that guy when it comes to jujitsu has a really open mind. And being open mind is a huge thing. But um, in one of his interviews, he was saying, you can't become a complete grappler without doing all grappling sports. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're a jiu-jitsu practitioner, you can't do, if you don't do wrestling, judo, sambo, you're missing all these different entrances or trips or um, escapes that you're not going to do before. Even catch, look at uh, catches catch wrestling. Mm -hmm. When um, Josh Barnett uh, went against uh, Dean Lister. Dean mm -hmm. Lister is unbeaten. Mm -hmm. This old style of wrestling where everything stemmed from, like catches catch stemmed basically everything. And he... Got him with that. I mean, everything evolves, but some people forget the basics. Um, so doing a lot of different things is going to make you a way better. Well, we got George Pardos here. He he did Greco, uh, what, uh, Judo and Sambo. Mm -hmm. John Sater, the same thing. He's a national judo coach for seven years. He did all three. He's a black belt and everything, including a Muay Thai. Mm -hmm. And so you, know, you got to learn it all or, you know, that one thing, that's the thing they'll nail you on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it covered that pretty good. Uh, flexibility, you know, now I'm, remember now I'm talking about kids, you know, basically four to seven, ten years old. But flexibility, they have to be flexible. And uh, I suggest that they do some uh, yoga and, um, you know, gymnastics, basically gymnastics. And another thing, I've talked to many coaches and they all agree that gymnastics and wrestling is two of the best things a young child can do. And uh, But you got to work on flexibility. At six years old, John, I want you to talk quite a bit about this because... Um, the studies I've seen at six years old, they do start to get the joints starting to tighten up a little bit because of, you know, mature growth of ligaments and tendons. And uh, so that at that point, they have to start doing stretching. We never stretch before we lift. And, I mean, we've got 26 people over 1,000 pounds squatters and nine guys over 900 in a dead. we got tremendously strong guys. Um, I don't – I believe in stretching, but not before you, you stretch. Um, if you read the facts and fallacies of training, I believe – um, Mel Siff said, it told me, because when I did surgery, says, there's never been one study that proved stretching before your event helped at all. Not one. But let, let's, you talk a little bit about because that's, that's right up your alley. That's what you do. Yeah, I mean, I do. Uh, I'm kind of like in the deep end of it, I guess, uh, where I, you know, I'm a manual therapist, but I do a lot of mobility work. Um, <clears throat> and so 
Uh, it's kind of like Mel Sif, you know, when he wrote in Facts and Fallacies, Super Training, all that other stuff. So, like, I even divided even more. So, like, flexibility, I define that as, like, a passive range of motion. So, and then, and then you have mobility, which is an active range of motion. So, uh, passive ranges of motion, they're, you know, you don't have any neurological control. You don't have any strength in those tissues. So, I try to, that's what the reason why the majority of stuff I do is mobility training. That's the reason why I add in so many isometrics, right? Because for me, the objective is to give an individual an active range of motion, not a passive. Um, and so that's the reason why it's like I use what's called functional range conditioning, where we do, it's called a pales contraction or a rails contrast, rails contraction, where it's a, a progressive angular isometric loading. Does that make sense? So it's like, it's like even either like to simplify it, it's either an overcoming uh, isometric at an end range or a yielding isometric, which when you break it down, you guys kind of do that with like your static dynamic work, but you guys do it for exercises where I do it for joint systems. So I see where the joint doesn't have capacity. You guys see where the lift doesn't have capacity. So where their mini max is or whatever you would call it. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm doing <laughs> is I'm trying to do it for like intrinsically. So you guys are extrinsic which would be more looking at like, okay, we need to do this exercise and this is where that weakness is for that individual. I look at it from an intrinsic uh, standpoint where I look at the movement capabilities that individual has. And just because somebody has a range of motion doesn't mean that they ha it's an active range of motion, right? And when you look at it from like a fighter's perspective, that's why I would say, you know, in my opinion, I believe wrestling would be significantly better than even like gymnastics or yoga or anything like that, because the issue that I see with yoga is it's it's too much of a passive passive stuff. So when they get to an end range, they kind of relax in that end range. Now, if you added isometrics into that end range, now you're going to start to acquire actual you know neurological drive into the cortical mapping, strength into the connective tissues, all that other stuff. Why is isometrics so important in your stretching? Well, I mean, isometrics is everything that I do because. Uh, uh, <laughs> because it goes back to the fact that like, I believe, like I was telling Trent, you know, when somebody comes to me and when somebody comes to you, generally what they're saying is this is the demands that I have and I don't have the capacity to meet those demands. So from my perspective, I have to do something that's going to specifically increase their capacity so they're a better match for their demands, right? So if I just stretch someone, guess what? It's not going to give them any increased capacity. I have to somehow get them to acquire strength, neurological control, all that other stuff within that, within the, uh, so that they increase their capacity. Does that make sense? Yes. So what, when you do isometrics, the way you do it for um, gaining mobility and flexibility, you're not getting, you're not stretching nor contracting a muscle. It's staying statically. It's staying held at one length so that it doesn't cause inflammation. Correct. Yeah. So the two of the mechanisms, the mechanical mechanisms that create inflammation is joint shearing and tissue gliding. With an isometric, you don't get either. Right. But what you do is, and the other thing too, is a lot of people don't think about it, but it really stabilizes the joint. So when you're talking about joint stability, you know, when you're doing isometric and you're rotating up and I'm trying to rotate you down, you're having to stabilize that entire joint complex. Right. So you're really starting to be, be able to uh, build stability and functional mobility into the joint instead of passive stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that I see is like passive. I'm not saying that passive mo modalities don't have its place, but passive modalities aren't going to increase that individual's capacity. So if someone acquires increased, uh, um, you know, passive ranges of motion, they're not really usable. So let's say they're a fighter. Well, now uh, I can take that individual into that range and they don't exhibit control in that range. They don't have neurological drive, et cetera, in that range. That means that another individual can take them there too 
and now they're at a higher risk for injury, in my opinion, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, uh, I talk to a lot of ball players. I usually go to three camps and help them, right? And I, I watch a lot of ball players that talk about mobility, and they could, they could get in their position, but not past that position. And I always felt that's the fastest way to get hurt, because uh, what happens to get pushed past that position? Uh, my friend Buddy Morris, he's in, in the NFL right now. He played. He was at uh, Pitt for years. He never thought you should put your hands over your head. Like, anything over your head. I go, well, what happens if you get your hand over your head? I mean, uh, someone like me, old, I can't do it anymore. But until you can't do it, I think you should be practicing it. Every angle well, possible that you could get. Well, see, and that's the thing is you're going to get injured in the areas that you don't train. Right. right? So, so eventually it's going to come back to get you. Yeah. He – he, what he done was he, he established his thought to working in cadaver labs, you know, looking at dead people. And I'm thinking we need to be working with live people. Right. Well, when uh, that was over, we talked about it and the, the, the term groove training was coined because you train yourself into a groove. So once you're in that groove in your comfort zone, everything's A-OK. But in professional sports, shit's going to go wrong real quick and you get outside of that groove. And it comes back to SPP and GPP. Like two people get too specific in the weight room and they don't train different ranges of motion or, and they don't train different exercises that are like that are going to benefit regardless, but they're going to try to keep to the sport and then they go on the field and something goes happen because you can get hit from all different angles. You can jump up, try to catch a ball, you can land wrong, all this stuff. But if you're not training, uh, training outside the groove, you're going to get injured. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why like uh, like I've had success here and why you guys have had success here is because I look at it intrinsically and you guys look at it extrinsically. So let's say that, you know, uh, this individual acquires a better hip joint. So that's all I'm worried about. I don't have to know the external demands. That's what you guys do. So they get a better hip joint. Well, guess what? When you go to squat, you're using a hip. When you go to deadlift, you're using a hip. So they acquire the specific and then in a more general setting, you guys are able to train it. Then what happens is it gets better generally. Then they come back to me, and guess what? It's better in a specific set. And you start to see where they're actually expanding the capacity, right? But part of the issue is you can't really see someone's capacity until you constrain the system. We've talked about this before, right? When it's like some of the some of the elite-level athletes that we have, like the shot putter, right? Mm -hmm. He has no function in his hip joints. You ask him, hey, where do you feel it when you know, before he, right before he came here? Yeah. Hey, where do you feel it when you when you go to throw a shot put? Well, he feels it in his back. Well, it's because he doesn't have a functioning hip joint. But if you looked at him, you know, in that dynamic setting of, of what he was doing in a shot put, it would assume like he's got a hip joint, but he doesn't, which is the reason why now his back is acting as his hip. So, so, so that's one of the reasons why it's like by starting to acquire functioning hip joints, then he's able to train those functioning hip joints. You see that his shot put goes drastically up because externally he's getting better and internally he's getting better. This is a 74 foot shot put. <laughs> this is no joke of a shot putter. Yeah. Wait, you said the right word is assumption, assume. That's what a lot of coaches do. They assume. They look at an athlete, well, I assume... They're okay because they might pass the eye test. You're like, okay, yeah, you look good. And um, back, but again, no one thinks that the, the body's an adaptive process. So it's going to make pathways all around your injuries. And then sooner or later, something else is going to give out. Yeah. This who, who's, who's at fault always? The strength coach. Yeah. yeah. It, so. it goes right back to law of accommodation. They get stuck into doing the same thing repeatedly until you start to go backwards. Right, and, that, and this is the same thing that we've had this conversation before too. So think about, you know, the accommodation. Like, how would you how would you term accommodation so that everyday people can understand it? 
Well, it's like you, you're a bodybuilder. You went and did barbell curls every day. Pretty soon, your progress had stopped. Okay, exactly. You have to do other type of curling to get your biceps to respond to it. Okay, so exactly. Yeah, so- all sports are conjugate. Every play in the football, practically everyone, is a different play. You can't use, if you ran up the middle for 25 yards of first play, a, a normal person will think, well, why don't I just do that the whole game? But you know that doesn't work. Right. right. And so when you but think. it may work later on. <laughs> and, so, and so I think that's what makes it so successful here is that that's an external demand. But then on the, on the backside, so think about it. So if you have a shoulder joint that only functions at 50%, Right, so you only have fifty percent of active range of motion. Right, you can only load the tissues within the fifty percent. Right, so the system's constrained. So what happens? You can start to change external demands as much as you want, but you're still only accessing the same tissues. What we do here is acquire more of the range of motion, so that they have more of a shoulder joint, so that they avoid that intrinsic com- accommodation. So when you bring more of a shoulder joint, you can load more tissues, which means you don't have an accommodation from like an in- intrinsic factor. It's back to physical fitness. You get people physically fit. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I like to mention something, even though he's far from um, 7 to 10. We had a 60-year-old long-distance runner. He ran 270 miles straight. Extreme. He's extreme, extreme. distance. Yeah, he took, a, he took a fast straight, distance. Straight. <laughs> yeah, it's extreme. Non-stop for 70 hours. <laughs> and he's, he had a severe back problem. You saw it. And can you explain to me, can you explain to the audience why he has it? And what's going to happen now that he's had surgery? What's going to happen? Yeah, so, so yeah, so, I mean, you, you're the one that told me that, hey, man, take a look at this guy. I think he's got a huge issue. So, basically, this guy was running, like, he ran all of India, I believe? Yeah, Okay. So, so, he ran across India. <laughs> and the entire time he ran across India, he had no hip joints. Okay, and, I mean, it made sense why he did it that way because, like, you can't – so. Descri- I don't, can someone describe how he ran? I can't really describe. Like Basically, shuffle. If anyone knows what yeah. that is, just shuffle. Yeah. He's not landing, have a deformation. Yeah, there's so no wearing de- out the, the muscle and the reverse reversal muscle action. Yeah, so I mean, no, obviously, you know, when you run, you're designed to use your hip joint. That is the main load bearing joint in your extremity. It's a ball and socket joint. It has the most degrees of freedom. So when you come up for a movement solution, you want to be using your hip joint. Well, this guy had zero hip joints, which meant that the shuffling motion where he barely lifted his feet up. He was basically just moving, uh, not, you know, his thigh bones, but his actual pelvis. He's just rotating it back and forth. Well, the entire time he was doing that, it was basically shearing his vertebrae, right? Because he wasn't lifting his his feet up. So it's like the same thing. Well, it's like, if you want to run that distance, you need to have high-functioning hip joints. But you don't have high-functioning hip joints and you're running the distance. Guess what? You're not a good match for the demands. So basically what he did was he sheared I can't remember which disc level it was at, but he ended up having to have a fusion. L3. Yeah, and I mean, you could even see it when he ran, wow. you know what I mean? And so it's like, yeah, so he just didn't have the, you know, requisite, you know, range of motions in his hip joints to run the distance he, and so he chose to run anyway, and then basically uh, destroyed his back in the process. So now he has a cage in his back, but when he resumes running, what's going to happen? I don't Without know. someone like you. Well, I mean, I hate to say it too. Yeah, I mean, comp- right back to what he was. Yeah, compensation is just going to occur somewhere else in the spine because you have to specifically acquire a hip joint. Like one of the athletes we have here, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's probably the most, in like, he's the most athletic person I've ever worked on. You know, he played at, you know, the university here and now he's in the NFL and he doesn't have a functioning left hip joint, right? But, 
you know, at least when we first started working with him. But now, since then, he has an actual functioning hip joint. But if you watched him on film, you know, he was able to play, you know, big Big Ten player of the year at one position, change positions mm -hmm. to another position, get drafted, and then play in the league in that new position. So he's super athletic. But you would assume he has a hip joint, but when you put him on the table and you say, you know, the definition of a joint is articulation of bones, I should be able to move one bone independently of the other bone. He has none of that. Furthermore, he's got an impingement pain, so he's degenerating his joint on top of it. But you would never know that until you actually, like, do an assessment. So he spent four years at a major university and no one detected this till he came to Westside Barbell. Yeah, correct. And then on top of it, too, he had to change position, which I guess was fortunate to him Maybe. because of the same issue he had in his upper extremity, which forced him to change position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this is not just one unique case. This, no. this is based on nearly every case we have. But kind of bringing this back in, when we're young, we're not born fucked up, really. Yeah. Like, like this is something that has some processes put in place to where you, how many people have we worked with that they get to high school and when they sooner to get to high school, they're so screwed up when they get to college. And then if they get to the next level, they only get one year because their body hasn't done it. So it comes back to how good are your coaches earlier on. And a lot of the time, and... Uh, I feel bad because a lot of these coaches are doing a voluntary basis because they got no one there to coach, so they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. But it's 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 us. It's we're the ones that are kind of screwing up these friggin' kids because they're not. If you see a baby squat down, it's perfect. They got perfect form. They've got perfect squat form. Everything because everything they have to support the weight. But you start out very flexible and pliable, yeah. and mm -hmm. then it starts in. That's why a child can jump out of a tree and not break his leg, and you and mm -hmm. I do it. We'll break our leg. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to interject there for a second. I mean, a lot of times from a young athlete's perspective, words are just meaningless to you. Like they don't, you don't know what you don't know. And they literally have no idea what the words that are spewing out of some old man's mouth are at you. You know, he, he's, he's throwing a ball at the ground. Once you go scoop it up and he's yelling, no, we don't want a waist bender. We want a hip bender. And you just have your helmet on. You're like, all right, I'll run back to the back of the line. Never think about it again to your next rep. And you see the other guys on film. So you just try to make it look like them on film, but you don't exactly know mm -hmm. like the mechanism of how to do that. And so from a coach's perspective, if you really want to help an athlete, find words that mean something to that athlete as a way to explain it to them. And that was probably why I enjoyed discus so much is because I had a really good discus coach that found a way, he, he had ways to tell it to one athlete and would say the exact same thing in a completely new sentence to another athlete, but it meant something to that athlete and got him into that correct position. And I think that's that's the most important thing is you have to find a way to educate the athlete of what it means to not be a waist bender and what it means to be a hip bender and how that should look. Like after five years of playing ball at Stanford, finishing four years in the NFL, there's no way that today should have been the first day I realized that my hip should move independently of everything mm -hmm. else. You know what I'm saying? It's just, but that's that's what we have. That's exactly what you keep telling us. Like, as a coach, you can't assume the athlete's going to be like you. You can't coach, you got to coach the athlete as the athlete. And you got to come to, like, whatever their level is and coach them as they are. And that's exactly what you were saying. That's what you kind of, when I first came here, that's one of the biggest things is, uh, you come from usually a standard coaching protocol is a dictatorship, do as I say because I am the coach, and then you come here and that's not the case. If you want to get good results, you have to find that way, find that, find whatever that link is. And sometimes it might take years, sometimes it might be one sentence, and 
it all depends, but that's... Yeah, the problem with us is the older lifters will tell the younger who have came back to the gym now, tell the younger lifters exactly what I'm telling them, but they won't listen to me. If I went down, today's our speed squat day, as you would say, but they don't know the real name of what we do today. What they tell me. And I'm going to say it in case you're listening. They would not know the name of the day. And it just dumbfounds me that in my own gym, we go all over the world, but in my own gym, they don't even know the real system. They don't understand how to switch volumes and intensities. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. You know? Yeah, and then from the athlete's perspective, I mean, don't be afraid to ask questions. Like it took, it took me a certain point of maturity and comfortability with myself once I kind of proved it to myself to be able to sit back and be like, all right, it's not my fault. I don't know what I don't know. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just you got to figure it out. You got to ask the questions. You got to find the tools and the resources and then go about it that way. And so if you don't know, it's like kind of forgetting somebody's name and then you go along and realize two years later, you're like, oh, it's too far down. I can't ask him his name now. It's like, just ask him from the beginning when you don't know and then move on from there and then grow and then you can continue to evolve. One, one of our greatest benches, George Howard came here and he kept tearing pecs. George, you know George, you get pecs like that. I said, George, you've got to get your arms stronger than your pecs because they got to start first. If your pecs start first, you can tear them. And this went on for two years and finally some, we kept, I kept telling him, stretch the bar. Two years, someone got it through his head about stretch the bar to activate the tries. It never happened again. But it took two years, and it wasn't me. <laughs> I believe it might have been Kenny Patterson. I don't care who it is. You know, I don't care who gets it in your head, right? Somebody's got to get it in your head, like yeah, you said. no question. So I, I said it a million different ways. And they, but anyhow, I finally got, you know, this guy broke um, six world records in a row in three wet classes at one point. Um, no, I'm sorry, eight world records. All right, where are we at? <laughs> Endurance training. You know, a young child's got to build endurance, first of all. So it's easy for them because, you know, but building endurance is all types of ways. I, 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 might, I might talk to Trent about it. But, you know, basically you can just do some jogging, slow running, jogging. Me, I like sled work. I like to get strong and build endurance at the same time. Wheelbarrow's one of the best things I've ever done uh, because you ha- you've got to build a grip, you got to balance it, and, and, you know, Tom, I know you guys don't really, you could call, you could call it fast endurance, I guess, Going around the building as fast as possible. Well, we 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 have all just like sleds. We have different records. Different, different You go around a half a mile yeah. and then a we, so we got mile. we've got forty, we got sixty yards, mm-hmm. and then we got four hundred meters and we got eight hundred meters. So you got a lot of tests with the same thing. Yep. So if you had four things, you had four tests. You have sixteen evaluators. Exactly. Uh, and what do you what do we call those? We call them builders and testers. testers. And they they correlate with mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. So now what we have it down to when. If you have a fight or you have an event coming up, we know which ones to plug in where and what you're going to get the most out of. You, you know, really, you're a you're almost a full-time strength coach for them, but they really have a part-time fighting coaches. Am I right? Correct. Give me a couple of records. Give me their MMA records. What's what's Miles? Seven and one. Seven and one. Uh, AJ as a pro is six or as a pro, he's three and zero. Oh. Three and zero. Oh. And um, AJ. Of uh, TJ. TJ. TJ's four and one, um, yeah. Uh, who? Oh, Chad, well, Chad's gone up there. Yep. Uh, Chad, I think is six and two. It, his girlfriend is what six Nine. and over something. Yeah. So, so they basically got to do physical training when we know that they need to be, become better fighters, which they are going up to strong style. But Mark Marinelli, where Stepe trains. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, I remember. But who was it said to you? But. Um, 
uh, if brute strength fails, get more brute strength. Yeah. But they're so well-rounded strength-wise mm. that when they went up to do uh, sport-specific training, it was a lot easier because mm. they had the physical capacity to do the training. Mm -hmm. So you get someone who doesn't have that, you put them in awkward positions because AJ especially, um, you can hold him in awkward angles and he's able to get out where people are just dumbfounded. We're like, well, how is that? Well, because he's strong. He's strong in every plane we can get him strong at because in MMA, you can end up in the most awkward positions possible. So you're trying to get them strong everywhere. So really GPP enables them to succeed at SPP, exactly. their own sport. Yeah. You have to have GPP first, yeah. you know? I talk about a pyramid. You know, you have you have GPP and you have SPP, and um, and then at the top of it, it becomes performance. You know, yeah. and physical ability. Like you know, you wouldn't have done, if you didn't have any phys, if you had a, you know, a, 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 no physical ability, you wouldn't be in the NFL. Right. So you got it. All has to come together, and you need a big base because a pyramid is only as tall as its base. So build a big base when you're working with children, especially. Mm -hmm. And you have to introduce them a lot of sports because you got to find out which ones you really want to play and which ones they hate. So, well, I, well, back to that, when you were, how old were you when you said, okay, I'm not doing baseball, I'm going to. Um, well, actually, uh, 18. I graduated so, at 18. And right then, usually that's your. That's my prime. Yeah, but and, and you're. It's a hard decision. That's what you're going to say, but a lot of children or kids are stubborn. They're like, well, I'm going to try this. But what, what's the, what made you go, okay? Okay, I, I could be good at this, but I know I'm going to excel in this. But see, you went off because you were in, when you started it, you were at the lower end when it gets to the top end. And I don't think, that's a problem nowadays. Kids want to go for the easy route. They want to have, a lot of these kids want a participation trophy. And that, that's the... But they don't want to stick to anything. Yeah. I stuck to it for a few years. I competed for 50 years. Competed. <laughs> Over an elite level for 50 years. What who in the hell can do that? But I was I was single-minded. I, I wanted to do one thing. I didn't care about nothing else. You know, I'd love to maybe play in the NFL if I was your size. Or I'd love to fight. I love the. I used to get. I mean, I got 13 teeth. Okay, they didn't just fall out. <laughs> and but I never wanted to take time to learn how to really fight because I wanted to train. I wanted to lift weights. One you could call it one dimension, but shows a shark, and they've been on this planet for a long time. <laughs> Sharks and alligators, dude. <laughs> And I, that's what people some kind of called me, so I don't get it. But that, but because back to the Jeep, back to your base too, building that base. And yeah. What people fuck up on is they think it's real comp. It's not. What we do for the fighters is comes from what you did for track and field. We do the football. Everything is just minute changes to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. But the foundation is still the same foundation. Just going back to, you got that, that your system. Like if if you don't have a base in anything. How can you succeed? You can't. You got nothing. You can't build houses on a shitty foundation. Yep. So everything comes back to that, and it's up to you as a coach to go. Okay, if you're a football player, you're a fighter, yep. you're a bodybuilder. Okay, I've got my foundation. I'm just going to tailor it a little bit differently, and then that's it. And you got to be honest with children. But it's something that I really don't like in colleges uh, because I know this is true. Many times they'll take you get very good athletes. You know, has a good athletes, but you get the same training. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now you know. It, 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 you know, a guy said one day, he said about Chuck Vogelpool, I'll tell you, Matt Smith, you know, he can kick my ass, he's 380 pounds. He goes, man, you always got your head up Chuck Vogelpool's ass. I said, because Chuck Vogelpool's breaking records. And then later on, he says, you always got your head up Greg Penor's ass. I said, because Greg Penor's breaking world records. When your fat ass breaks a world record, I'll, 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 I'll give you a little something on the side too. 
But you know, you've got to go the, what feeds the house, right? Yeah. They're breaking world records. Everyone knows to this day who Chuck Vogelpohl, Greg Panora is, and, and they hadn't lifted in 10 years. But they know who they was because, and it takes a, a tremendous unit to do that. You know, the guy needs something. I'm, I mean, Tom will tell you, man. Yeah. I'll give the house away for this guy to go break a record. That's all, all I care about my gym. I don't care about nothing else. Yeah, I mean, to go off what you were saying at the beginning there, it's really not a one-size-fits-all. And especially for me, it was very frustrated early on, especially in high school and middle <laughs> school, because I was such a tall, long, skinny athlete. It kept growing vertically. It wasn't growing, filling out. Like, I mean, that's almost the first time I ever stumbled across West Side it was when my dad handed me a West Side for skinny bastards and I was, you know, growing growing up. And, it, I mean, it's really, especially like in today's society, all the young kids want to throw something out. They have not immediate success. But it's like, especially if you're a taller athlete, you're still trying to figure out your athleticism, grow into your body a little bit, there's going to be growing pains. There's going to be this awkward time. And that's where the foundation is just as important for you. Because without that foundation then you're not going to develop those skill sets that maybe, uh, you know, somebody that stopped growing a couple of years ago has been developing and, and they're way far ahead of you. And so I think that's, I mean, hugely important not to get frustrated and keep that, keep that work ethic and that foundation because it's not a linear line. It's going to be this crazy up and down shitty sh chart, but you got to keep with it. Well, you know, in our, in what I do, we're always locked in a gym. Our guys are always going to be the same. Our gym's private. They're all going to look like me, short and chubby. Right? Or you don't need to apply. But you've seen a lot of different athletes. And, you know, all kind of, because there's all, ball teams have all mm -hmm. kind of different players. Yeah. So you see a lot of kids, and I know the players come through college, probably slow, slow developers, right? Yep. They look like crap as a freshman or junior. Michael Thomas hardly played as a, as a uh, freshman here because he couldn't learn to play, as he told me. Now, in the first two years, I think NFL's got the most catches in yardage <laughs> yeah. of all time. But he was very confident. He told me, I'm going to be the best receiver out of Ohio State. I said, well, good luck, you know. <laughs> but, I, you know, by God, he's on his way to doing it because he's got what it takes, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've seen guys, I would have bet against them, and then you see well, yeah. you see these guys that are specimens, and then you put them on a football field, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, maybe not. Mm -hmm. And so it's just no telling. I mean, there's really no telling what's inside an athlete. And That's they right. just stick with it and stay the course. And you have a million-dollar body in a 10-cent mark. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen yeah. hundreds of those. Mm -hmm. right, and then – I don't know who said it, but he was but, compared to horses. You got workhorses and you got racehorses. Mm -hmm. So racehorses look good out the bat, but then workhorses, they keep on working and working and working. Guess what? They get on right up to the top. Yeah. You're right. I can't remember what was it. Fucked your shit up. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I talk about playing sports because if you put a kid on a soccer field, for instance, um, you know, even though soccer might not be the best sport for determining what kind of, because it's so non-directional. But if a kid can run all day, you're thinking, well, he probably doesn't go be a super explosive athlete. He's not going to play football. He's going to play a sport where it takes more longer than, you know, endurance sports would be better for him. You know, if he's real quick sprinting but wears out, uh, you know, well, he's a suck soccer player, but he might, might be good for a football field. You know, if you look at baseball, baseball's a lot like my sport. You screw around, you screw around, and you steal second base or hit a wrong run. Then you screw around. And it's a slow-paced game. So that's why it fits certain people, you know, where you got a f football and the door is getting faster and faster paced. So you got to really be in shape. You know, you got to work. I always said if I, if I was a conditional football player, I would show the wrist intervals between um, the, the plays. I wouldn't be running two miles because um, – 
you you got these studies why do ball players slow down because they run them too much too much uh, aerobic training kills anaerobic capacity you know like we talk about sprinting and in sprinting what is sprinting the definition of a sprint is to run as fast as possible for a short distance once you start to slow down you are wasting your time mm -hmm. Anyone that thinks running a mile is going to help your 100 or 200 is out of their mind. You're not going to build a base, are you, Tommy? Because you're watching with Travis Clark, probably how many fights? At least 40 pro fights. And he go half a mile with all wheelbarrows loaded up and with weight vests and ankle weights. Nothing to it. He goes fight, get a couple of cuts from headbutts and stuff. Out for what? Two, three weeks, come back, kill himself with half the work, going half the distance. Where'd that base go? They think you don't, there is no base, coaches. There is no base. You know, like anybody, like as a big time athlete like uh, Tread here, if we if we work for strength for Tread, and then we don't work strength for within 21 days for sure, he loses 10 percent of his strength. Uh, mobility, flexibility, dexterity, hand and eye, it all goes away. So you can't do that. That's that's a, a bring, I want to bring up the conjugate system, because for children it's the best thing. You know, the conjugate system basically was for high skilled athletes, and. Uh, you know, it kind of replaced block periodization in a way. We completely replaced it because block periodization is a detraining. Um, so we do all this. We build maximal strength in one week. Uh, 72 hours we're building speed strength or explosive strength. Uh, both workouts, and that's, you know, for upper body and lower body, so that's four workouts. And then everyone does at least one workout extra for upper and one for lower. And top guys do, you know, two extra at least. And so you're building muscle mass, and we're putting muscle where we want it. We have special machines to build up the hamstrings or the lower back or the upper back or the hips and, and, the, and the legs and the, you know, and our ATP. And, um, but when you use the conjugate system, because the, the, the loads are all, you can't keep the same load. The, the training load, the volume has to change. The intensity has to change. The type of strength your training has to change. Explosive, maximal, speed strength, all the velocities, you, you they can be used in one side of one week. And, and so what happens at this point, <clears throat> if you understand the conjugate system, you have eliminated the law of accommodation. There is no law of accommodation anymore because you're not repeating the same thing over and over and over. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just you know, the way, it, it's just, that's science. Like if you weight, lift weights at 90% and above in the same exercise for three weeks in a row, you go backwards. It's, it's, it's been proven hundreds of times. I used to do it. Three pin record, you know, three pull pin in the power rack for three weeks. Four weeks, we drop off. I will go, what the hell? I had no, I didn't know enough until I started reading this stuff in 1982. But what it was, I mean, I was suffering from law of accommodation. Yeah, and a lot of people don't understand like these laws. They go across. It's just not biological. It's it's a law. Oh, oh it's a law. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's funny. It's like you know, Tom, you've seen this, and it's like, you know, I'm uh, like because uh, I'm more in the bodybuilding type realm, right? And you'll see guys do the same exercise continuously over and over again. And it's funny, you know, I work with so many of these guys trying to increase their mobility and all that other stuff. And I'll tell them, hey, man, you're going to have to start switching up your exercises. And they don't they don't understand it. And it's like you have to change it to other things. Like it's like uh, and like I'll see it in other realms of, of stuff. So it's like the same thing, like for whatever reason, you know, I eat Greek yogurt with one of my meals. And I just keep eat, kept eating, you know, basically like blueberry Greek, Greek, uh, Greek yogurt. Well, then all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know, my fiance accidentally got me peach. But then you don't realize it's a whole new stimulus. You know I mean, you're like, man, this is really good. I like this significantly better. But it's kind of the same thing. People don't see accommodation. But just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. 
So it's like these guys in bodybuilding want to choose the same exercise over and over again and try to do linear progression on it. And it's not going to work like that. Linear laws don't go to dynamic systems. It's two different systems. Does that make sense? So it's like you have to apply nonlinear laws to nonlinear systems. The body is nonlinear. Thus, linear laws don't work. So where does it all start? In your head. Yeah. In your head. In it. But it's, a, it's so hard getting it across athletes, you know, like, it, and it, that's what it's like. Like, we were saying, you have, to, you have to model it for the same thing. So that's what I'll tell people is, like, if you ate the same thing every day, eventually you're going to accommodate and you're, you're going to be like, I'm sick of this. Well, that's a stressor and a stimulus just like lifting is. So just like you change what you eat, you know what I mean? Maybe you have to change how you train all that other stuff to get new stimuluses. Well, we use so many different bars and so many – we just change things constantly. Yeah. To a, ben Tabasnik, a famous sprint coach from the Soviet Union, said to adapt to training is never to fully adapt. But once you adapt, you get no better. Right. You, you know, when you uh, when you play... Uh, and technically, I, you go back. You will go back. It's, it's, it's not that you don't get any better. Return. Yeah, you start you to get... You go backwards. You have to go backwards. Right, which is another you know, law. I, I tell people, if you can spell your name right, which I seldom do, the only <laughs> thing you can do is to spell it wrong. You can't spell it any better, you, but you can spell it wrong, which Thomas told me to do several times. <laughs> One thing uh, on that point is with coaches, and we go around, we talk to a lot of different coaches, a lot of different strength coaches, and they're so set in their ways, and they're afraid to change. They're afraid to look like a fool. Man. But just say they started, maybe some of these guys started 15, 20 years ago with equipment that's 15 or 20 years old, mm. and they use that as testers for their athletes. And everywhere they go, it's the exact same testers mm. with the exact same equipment, and it's never progressed. And they're wondering, well, why, why are these athletes still saying the same? They got the same shopping list, whatever university they go to, or real pro, they just buy the same crap, wherever they go. Because we sell stuff, and there's many, then they'll call, another team will come in, they done got rid of all of our stuff, and bought something new, you know what? Uh, you know, um, I always felt it would be a, a very an advantage for a, a defensive player to play the offensive position in front of the defensive player to understand how it feels on offense. Uh, so you could read a player better. Do you, you believe that? Absolutely. I mean, when I finally probably evolved most in pass rush is when I was trying to help out and a fellow outside linebacker, got in a left tackle stance, took three kicks back, and then started seeing it from a different perspective. And then when I accepted in my mind that it's somebody that's running backwards, that's trying to stop me moving forwards, and how – much harder physically that should be for him yeah. is when I stopped giving them so much credit and started looking at them as fat toes that were moving backwards. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it's a different perspective entirely. But it, cha it changed your whole outlook. Yeah, it, it changed but, everything. And yeah. so uh, gaining that perspective, seeing what they're seeing from, from a different light, maybe I, I started using more filming and GoPros and things to look at like, all right, Am I lifting my chest? Am I exposing my numbers? Like, what surface area do they have to punch? Started looking at my shoulder pads. Like, oh, why am I wearing such bulky, heavy shoulder pads? Just giving them more surface area to grab onto. And so you, you look at it from, from their perspective, and you can make their life a lot more challenging. Mm. And, you know, that's the thing coaches have to do at the young age is to teach athletes about self-evaluation. Like, don't be critical of yourself. Just evaluate. See what you've done. But if you don't learn that at a young age, they're going to expect people to spoon feed them the whole way up. And then it gets to a, a time when they're by themselves, they're like, well, what do I do? Because I've been spoon fed everything. And they never got an education. Yeah. See, because my way trains not the way Tommy trains. 
And that's why I don't want the football players. I mean, you know, they come kick my ass, but I don't care. Because you've <laughs> got to take it to the whole freaking workout. And I said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. You know, you get them to do a Friday workout, and next Friday it's the same damn thing, except we change Friday. What do we do? The same thing we did last, you know. And man, Tom's got the patience of it. I don't have the patience of it. <laughs> I'm a quick learner. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you went to Stanford. Uh, yeah, I went to High State for 14 years. Yeah. Just on the weekend. There it is. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only time to go. But back the to bar's the, closed. I was out. <laughs> to um, sports selection. Well, kids, uh, a big problem that I've seen, and I'll give a prime example, is you got parents pushing kids into the wrong sport. Mm -hmm. And... I've seen it time in and time out. You come into <clears throat> boxing, especially now MMA is real relevant. So they all want the next GSP or Conor McGregor or whoever. So they bring him into the gym. And you, you can just, a good coach can see by the demeanor of, an, of the kid, like he's probably not going to excel, but you give the benefit of the doubt and they get punched and they cry or they, they turn away. And you're like, this is probably not the sport for them, but their parents push them in the wrong direction thinking they're been... And they don't want to. And we're in an age now to where if you tell a parent like your son is not going to be a fighter, they're going to either try to do something legal against you or do something crazy. But you have to be honest. You have to let your son or daughter try all different sports and see what they excel in, not just just hope they're going to live through your aspirations. Yeah, even in fighting, you got to get a kid in. He might like to mix it up, but does the kid? What happens if the other guy starts running and tried to frustrate him, mm -hmm. which I can't stand, and um, you know. Um, Sugar Ray uh, Leonard used to say that I couldn't stand that work because I hated that guy. I just watched him. And uh, but you know you got it. Can you handle any any whatever happens in a fight? Like we just saw Stepe's fight. Perfect example. You know he had this tremendous scientifically proven training that got him through one round. Um, what was his name? Was a Francis Nagana. Yeah, Francis Nagana. That training did him a hell of a lot of good. It was good for one round. And um, <laughs> so you know, and Stepe just held down, beat the crap out of him. So. Uh, I, I suppose probably he might learn more th than Stipe did out of that fight because Stipe already had a battle plan. You know, it's just like, you know, he knew the fight was over before it started because he had a plan. Well, another thing, too, is look at Stipe's background. I mean, Stipe wrestled, played baseball, Golden Glove boxer. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when you guys are talking about a base, I mean, right. I mean, and th that's the thing. Like, we know with working with, working with Stipe how athletic he is, but nobody knew it. But that's just because he didn't have to use any of his. Right. Uh, you know I mean, the, all the other fights were stoppages so fast. Nobody knew how athletic he was in comparison to this guy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, I've talked about endurance. Yep. Okay. Just remember, there's many things. The basic ways of building endurance, you know, if you want to just get down to the basics, besides doing push-ups and pull-ups and all this, is, you know, basic circuit training, repetitions, um, interval training, uh, continuous and uh, constant training with one amount of weight or training intensities inside the workout. You have to have endurance. Like, Tom, you do a lot of this. You know, I, I watch a lot of fighters, and they're building their endurance and throwing 10-pound uh, dumbbells. But you train fighters with body weight, and your fighters don't wear out. No, well, that's because they, they, everyone forgets. If I'm trying to I kick mean, your, yeah, their body weight. weight, yeah. If I'm trying to kick your ass, I gotta account for my body weight, mm. your body weight, and your strength. Then that way, I'm good. But if you're already training for your own body weight, well, you're screwed unless you're fighting yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, maybe we'll move on to tactics because this would be a good question to ask him. Because you know, I talk about tactics. Is it a child has to learn technique uh, before tactics? If I can't have any technique, I can't have any tactics on you. And, uh, but, you know, tactics can be a lot of things. Like, you know, if you, if you look at wrestling, it can be a move on you, uh, a pitch, a certain pitch. 
Um, I, you know, like I said, takedowns. Um, it could be combinations in boxing. It could be a lot of things. It could always be running in your mouth. Now, that's a question I want to ask you. Um, you're a lot of trash talking out there in football, right? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, I imagine at that level, it's hard to get a guy off his game plan, but that's the idea. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got a plan out there until they get punched in the mouth, yeah. and then uh, they stop talking. And but, so, But many times, talking is part of the tactics. It can be, certainly. I mean, if yeah. you got a guy you know is going to be short temper, you want to lock him in and then kind of blind him to uh, what you're actually doing. You get in his head and, and try to have him kill you with his face, and then he gets leaning forward, and all of a sudden you hit him with a push-pull, and then you're home free to the quarterback. So it, it can certainly be a tactic if you apply it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't like it, but I've, seen, I'm in, I've, I've been in sports all my life. I see basically the explosive people. The more explosive, the more you run your mouth. <laughs> the introverted people they don't talk so much they're not the most explosive either so I've, I've seen it in my sport always you know but tactics but you have to you build technique and fitness and then you can build tactics and that's I'm not sure you probably have there but the same for the coach yep. like the well, like Will down there I, I would run my mouth till the cows come home I run out of Jew whip but you taught me that is you run. I want to get someone either some some people can motivate in happiness or angry or like well, fuck that guy. He goes, you just try to run your mouth, but it's you as a coach you know well what's going to work for the right person. But it doesn't doesn't work for the athlete. The coach has no tactics. You can't just come in here and expect everyone to be like you. That's a that's a big thing I learned from this. Like this is the king of the shit talkers that you'll ever <laughs> ever meet. He's he's got a he's got a doctorate of uh, psychology from Dr. Dre University. <laughs> But it's, it's hugely important for coaches to realize that. In different individuals, yeah. you have to treat differently. You know, like we got a couple of guys, you can't go down and get up in their face. It's just, you know, I mean, they're kind of mama's boys. And the other guys, you know, they, they want to be pushed. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So, you're right. See, you talked about coaching. That's what I said. See, also, uh, I talk a lot about tactics. You know, someone's got to teach you the tactic, the mm-hmm. techniques, then the tactics. And so, so, so what happens like if you're, um, what happens like, you know, you're an exception, you're playing NFL, but you played and you couldn't even get in college, but now you love the sport. So you're going to be a coach. So you have, now you have to learn all facets of the sport, including tactics. So that's why it's important to learn these things when you're a child, because you may have to pass it on to other things. You know, Bobby Knight is one of the worst basketball players that ever lived. He played Ohio State and um, the coach here, Coach Taylor said, don't shoot the ball, don't shoot the ball. And they finally let him in the game. He goes down. Why don't play up and misses it? Takes him out of the game. Said, I told you not to shoot the ball. But Bobby Knight was a tremendous basketball coach with a tremendous, you know, uh, passion for the sport, you know, because, hell, he got fired from Indiana and throw chairs at people and everything else, headbutt people. But he couldn't play the sport, but he learned to coach the sport. And you know what? You're, then you're responsible for a lot of, lot of people. That's not yourself. Yeah, the key, I mean, keying on, on the word you said there with passing along is kind of one thing that, uh, especially with college football and, and youth sports, you, I mean, going back to the you don't know what you don't know, you're starting from scratch. But there there are people that just have done it, have been where you are, been in your shoes, that learned something, and they're four years in college, they're five years, however long they stayed. And so you don't have to start from scratch, and that's kind of part of the legacy and part of the dynasty. You should continue to pass along the information so you can grow and push it and push the envelope so you don't have to start from scratch. And and that's what I kind of went back to Stanford and did late with some guys that were my freshmen and that were fifth years now. 
and still struggling with things that I struggled with earlier on in my career. And I almost felt guilty. I was like, man, why didn't I give them these tools earlier? They're fifth years now. Like they should have been farther along than this, but they just never developed a tactic because right. they, you know, they didn't maybe spend as much time in film or doing different things. And so, I mean, that you can get a leg up on the competition if you have a veteran to give him your tactics and then you make his tactics your own and you make them better. And, and I think that that's a way to push the, the competition. Mm-hmm. I think what a big disadvantage in this, and I think everywhere outside of Russia really is that as coaches, you learn from trial and error all the way. But over there, they got a master of sports, a coaching course. So for four years, you learn from the best coaches in the world. You're learning what they did wrong, what they did right. So when you become a coach, you're starting off your career learning the best ways to train and the worst ways to train not to do. So you're going to evolve as a coach. Here, it's not there. I mean, I mean, outside of here, we self-regulate every day. Like, is this right? We're trying to constantly evolve. But nine times a ten, no one does it. No, and unfortunately, like 20, 25 years ago, around, you know, 1995, we'll say 20 years ago, I, I had a young boy, uh, Joe McCoy. You know I mean? I had a lot of young guys. I started at 14, and Kate Price was world record holder, opened at 20, and, and Joe was world champion, open world champion at 19. And Joe could coach as good as I thought I could coach. I said, Joe, what's, this, what's, what's going on? He'd tell you immediately. He knew right away. And, but I've always trained a person to become a coach. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew. They knew the system better then than my guys know now. Now, I don't know why. I don't know if they just take it for granted. We talked we talked about this. Uh, they just take what we do for granted. I mean, it's a in-depth. You know more about what's going on down there. Than That's not right. And I think if you know, you know, if you know the damn, you know, that's what makes you a better ball player. You know what the hell you're doing. You're just not told to go do this. Mm-hmm. What if you'd have to do because you wouldn't even be able to do it. Yeah, I just got tired of taking orders from people all smarter than. There you go. Now you make a mistake <laughs> enough. You make a mistake enough, you don't want to make it anymore, right? You yeah. don't want to be told, hey, you dumbass. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And there's another thing that has to be addressed, and it happens everywhere, is the most talented players do not make the most talented mm-hmm. coaches. And that's what happens. After they get out, they try to recruit them for a coaching play. And normally stuff came so easy to them, they're so frustrated of why it's not coming easy to the athletes they're trying to train. And they just, or you have the ego side of it, and they don't ever want them to excel better. And your whole definition as a coach or educator is to make them better than you. And if you can't let that ego set aside, then you shouldn't be a coach. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, you're right, exactly right. Like you, Michael Jordan, he thought, you know, no one could do what he could do, and he couldn't understand. That's why he would be a terrible coach. You know, even look at LeBron, as good as he is, he's always yelling at somebody. They don't have the physical capabilities to do what he wants them to do. And that team, you watch that team, it's a, there's, in my opinion, it's an old team. Uh, that's why they're getting blown out. They don't have the legs to play basketball anymore. Yeah. They need young. It's, sports is for young men and women. And, you know, so, and a lot of guidance, like that's what we're talking about. Get guidance out. You say you didn't go to sports schools, and you could give me your advice on, you know, like, uh, you know, playing on uh, – like McDonald basketball, getting on really good teams. I don't know what you think about that. Um, we just kind of had a different philosophy growing up. I went to a Jesuit high school, and it was a very much uh, all about a team camaraderie, like a team environment, mm-hmm. and they grounded into our bones that if you focus on the team goals and the team goals are met, the individual goals will all be met. And that's kind of was our philosophy. So we were the, wanted to win a state championship, wanted to go to playoffs, 
won won the state championship and now you bring in all the scouts and all the colleges want to look at that team because they must have the best players so we just yeah but the coach must have had pretty good basic skills to coach them too yeah i mean everyone was bought in passion worked their balls off i mean we're invested we're invested and i and i think that's that's half the battle well you said the team team the team even if it's a individual sport it's all a part of your team and your training partners. Like th- that's the most important thing. So you're only as good as the people you surround yourself by. Mm-hmm. So your training partners are a hugely important thing of what yeah. you do. Yeah, and your training partners should also intervene when you're doing something wrong and let yep. you know it. And Yeah, I mean, I think people misconstrue it all the time. They see the recognition that very successful athletes have, and they see them on commercials. They see them with the new socks and the shoes and everything. And then they think that they need to get the new socks and shoes in order to get to where mm-hmm. they got. And so they invest time and energy into their appearances and all these things that are virtually meaningless. Mm-hmm. And then they don't realize that if they focus on the process, that outcome of being on the commercial, what they saw growing up, will take care of itself. Yeah. And they focus on that end result, and then they just get totally thrown off and never never get there. We lose, lose vision of where they're really going. Yeah. You know, uh, at 1973, for a while, I had the highest total in the world. I trained in my basement with a mirror and an AM radio. I had no training partners. Walked out at 180, no gear. Walked out 805 on a 17-inch box. Had to uh, squat it, set it back on the pins, and unload it. So it was all vision. I mean, I had a strong mental attitude. And um, so some people don't have that mental attitude, but, you know, you... That's why you got to use your imagination. If you never imagined being in the NFL, you wouldn't be in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you might put, be pulling teeth right now for all I know. Yeah, you got to knock them out. <laughs> got to put it out there in the universe. Yep. It'll you come back. Tell, you it'll come back to way. you. When uh, how has it changed? Like when you, when you were growing up back in the dinosaur ages, but for um, for kids playing sports, but it, it's way different now. For like when like. Did you just go, okay, I'm going to play this sport? Was there as much selection or were there? No, no, when I go, you're talking a long time ago. You're talking, what, over 50 years? You know, you're talking 58 years ago or yeah. something like that. It was a long time back. No, you just, I, I never played baseball. If the city kids hadn't moved out in the country where right. I live. I was just out there getting in trouble. That's all I did. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, my, my big thing, I, I didn't have any money. In it. And they came out and they introduced me to a guy that owned a construction company and gave me, gave me a job. You know, I actually even worked. At, um, during school, uh, you know, these knockouts that we did, that's what I did. I did knockouts. I knocked out walls down and loaded them in a wheelbarrow, took them and dumped in a dump truck on the loading dock for um, Schottensteins, this huge here in town, progressive scores in, you know, all the stores like that. But so that's, that's, a, how I, that's a huge... But it was self-discipline. Yeah, that's a huge GPV base. Yeah, well, that's right. Like, so you're, you're accumulating all this base and look where it got you, but you're doing that at such a young age... And we've got people now who are afraid to train kids, which is terrible. Mm. Like, you don't have to load them up straight away, but a sled, something simple as sled pulling, do it like that's. I had uh, two, I had a couple of Chuck's cousins, um, name was Bill Sarr, I believe, uh, 10 years old, and they would, do, they would work up a sled for a mile and a quarter. A lot of, a lot of an upper body doing them. Um, they, they were wrestlers. And I always say, like I say with sled work, use a sled like your sport. Whatever the hell your sport is, is what you do. If you're also take it and act like you're pommeling isometrically, you know, whatever the hell your sport is. No, but they would do a mile and a half at 10 years old, and they became, uh, they went to college, and I believe they're actually co-trusting now. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, these are little boys, you know, he's like 75 pound kid. What's Brian's son? He's uh, 46 pounds. Yeah, he, we, I gave him a spatial belt for the ATP. He's doing and jumping on sled work. Jumping, and... jumping sleds and doing all kind of stuff. So, uh, one of the kids, he's 15. I got him. He's 14 to 15, and he had a pretty good base, but they're afraid to work him out uh, a maximal effort. He came in. He pulled one thirty. We'll say we'll say 225, and it was just a joke. But then he went to 275, and he couldn't. It budged, and then he dropped it because he didn't know how to strain. Within, I'd say, 12 weeks, it was up to 405. Because the central nerve, you, you don't know what, what the kids are capable of, but if you're not testing that central nervous system, you, they're at a huge disadvantage because they want, if they're lucky, they might stimulate it later in life. But if you can do it early, you're going to develop one hell of an athlete at a younger age. That's what I did. Yep. <laughs> I mean, clean jerk at 260 with no formal training at all. I never touched my body. You know, they didn't do two-part clean. At 260, at about a little bit under 150 pounds. Um, you know, it's like a child. If you take a child and you don't give him a, um, every year, give him harder questions, he doesn't get more intelligent. Mm -hmm. And I never could understand. They talk about not training max effort, but I mean, I'm maxed effort. Didn't bother me one bit. And you know, any child that goes and picks up weights, are you trying to tell me that he's only going to work up to maybe 80, 85 percent of his best? He's going to try a, a max out. And if he sprints with the girl next door, he's going to outrun her, you know. He's not going to run 80%. He's going as fast as he can. You know, that's what the goji tendon and so forth shuts the body down. You're not going, they're not going to get hurt. They'll just shut it down. Like you said, the kid shut it down until his central nervous system realized that he could have accomplished these heavier and heavier tasks. And plus, when you're at a young, young age, you've only got a certain amount of time to learn certain, certain mm, motor tasks. That's right. So as you get older, you know, and I, I, I'm a prime example of that. I started boxing when I was 15. Mm. I was too old. Yeah. Straight, straight away. I had little kids who were eight years old who were able to throw uppercuts. And I'm like, how? The fuck? Yeah. You couldn't do it because yeah. you just didn't have that uh, motor patterns. I think, um, you know, um, our fighter was here when at Colorado. Uh, Matt? Matt. I think man, he went to Cuba and said he got outboxed by a 16-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking Cuba now. Mm. But he said the guy just boxed his ears off, you know, from coming out of Cuba. And that's why it's very important to put your kids in the right sport and at the right. Because you start out on the, uh, off on the wrong foot, it's your whole way through. So you might as well start them out on the right path. And that's the big thing that pisses us off is like, well, why, why did you train like Westside? Well, why would you want to train like the best? I'm like, it's easily adaptable. You just have to have some com uh, common sense. Not so common anymore, but you have to have a common sense approach. But by just doing simple, simple shit, even by pulling this. We had a guy from New York call us. He was on the stock market, left his job, um, I think because he had a kid, bought a warehouse and bought, I think, 20 or 30 sleds. And all he does, he teaches kids from, I think it's a four years old, all up to 11 years old, pulling sleds. That's all they do is sleds, and they have humongous gains from it. Just as simple as that. A sled is the simplest thing you can do. Just walk forward. And yet, we have coaches to this day working on pro teams who don't know how to use a sled. Yeah, and I talked to a lot of coaches, that, you know, pro coaches, they said their ankle, knee, and hip injuries went way down after they started, you know, power up on sleds. I mean, I went out to Seattle, I had 40 players, I had to pull sleds with every one of them, five at a time, you know. I'm not like, what that? I was big, dude, that was tough. I didn't realize that, you know, a turf is so much harder to walk on. Oh, yeah. oh my God, my legs. <laughs> yeah. Buddy Morris did the same to me at the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, I helped them a lot, huh, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, going like, buddy, can you get someone else out here and, you know, let them show? <laughs>
do you have any uh, yeah, do you have any good books or anything to for people to, to go look at? Well, I, know, I know you said you're, you're releasing a book. Are you on this? Yeah, Tom, I'm coming up with a book, I hope, by midsummer. Uh, it's, it's, it's entitled The Rule of Three. And it, it basically, you know, it, it train, you can change over from four to ten years old. I want to start people out on the right path. Because, like you said, if, they, if you don't start on the right path, I mean, what if he was misguided and they told, like you said, you like basketball, but even at six foot six, you're not that damn big for a basketball player. You re see, you realize, like I did, you was a foot taller. <laughs> and, you know, you took the best course of action. And so did you, and so did you. So. Yeah. I think that's, that's good. I'd like to thank Trent, Louis, John. Uh, this is the Westside Barbell Podcast. We'll be back to you next month.